been about 15 years now. Whew. I'll say that to anybody else. Um, to get into youth ministry, I started in, in a, a sweet little church in St. Charles, Missouri, in outskirts of, of St. Louis, grew up, um, and they, they gave me my first opportunity uh, to be in paid ministry. Really, my job was just trying to connect students with Jesus Christ. I, to this day, have no idea why they hired me, because I had no concept what I was doing. None whatsoever. I was young, I was excited, and I'm like, hey, Jesus? And it was, that's pretty much what I had. That was my tool in my bag, just playing dodgeball and hey, hey Jesus. Um, I loved that little church, and throughout my, my early 20s, I spent a good deal of time there. Um, I was there hours and hours, and I loved it. I was just that guy that, that absolutely was a church brat. I loved being there. Um, and so I decided, as a financially responsible, very mature, early 20-something guy, I should buy a house. So I'm like, you know what, I'm at church all the time. I should probably find something cute, something little, something right next to church. And that's what I did. Bought a little house. It was a fixer-upper. Uh, my, my stepdad and I did a lot to fix it up. And by sheer dumb luck or whatever you would call it, I made a couple bucks off that house. And so now that I'm a financial mogul in my mid-20s and know exactly what I'm doing, um, I had the opportunity to go to Ohio and become a junior high, senior high minister at a church out there. And I thought, well, if it worked out so well the first time, obviously I'm going to do the, second, uh, do the same thing the second time. So I got in Ohio, and I, I, I literally found a house a tenth of a mile away. I think I could see it from the front porch. Bought a little house, um, and it didn't work at all. <laughs> I, I, you know, this is, this is embarrassing, but the reality is that sometimes great stories have a beginning, middle, and end. This one just had a beginning and an end. Um, I wasn't at that church very long. I zigged when I should have zagged. I probably should have asked a couple more questions in the interview. But the reality is, is after about a year, I found myself all by myself in this house that I'm paying mortgage payments on without a job. So I'm spending hours and hours and hours a day uh, looking for a youth ministry, looking for a job, calling my buddies up saying, hey, wh what do I do next? What do I do now? Trying to get decent advice. Um, it, was, it was kind of a dark time. First couple weeks, I thought, nah, no big deal. Uh, I'm going to work some side jobs. Everything would be, be great. I started working at a nursery for a time. Nursery is in flowers, not children. Um, and I am not, I don't have a green thumb. I think I would have been better with little kids. Uh, but it just, it got, there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry and a, and a lot of darkness that started creeping in my life after a few months of just kind of being stuck in a place where I had no control and things got hard. I started abusing some chemicals. I started reaching out and running towards happiness, something that I could grab with my hands because very little of my life was going the direction I wanted. And so I did. I I fooled around with some, some ridiculous things, and for accountability and for a laugh, I brought you some of those chemicals that I fooled around with. I, um, now, if you know me, I'm a pretty tame human being, um, but for the longest time, I drowned my sorrows in sugar, um, mainly circus peanuts. Anybody like circus peanuts in here? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a petroleum byproduct. Um, they're actually... <laughs> no, yeah. Anyway, they're fluffy goodness of joy and happiness. And I would kind of just be by myself alone in a situation where I was in control of very little. And I decided this, this was my happiness. I would shove it in my mouth. I would chew and fall asleep and wake up and do the day all over again. Um, 
if you're anything like me, maybe you've chased some fabricated happiness. Maybe, maybe it wasn't circus peanuts and all the beautiful, soft, wonderful goodness it brings. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's another chemical. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's nicotine. Maybe it's caffeine. Maybe it's sugar. Whatever socially acceptable or unacceptable thing, maybe we run after to try to get that momentary chemical happiness, that little smile in our heart because our joy bucket is so empty. If you're anything like me, maybe you run after things like promotions where you think, man, if I only had 5 or 10% more, my life would be perfect. Get that boat I've always wanted. Family would be happy. And then as soon as that 5 or 10% rolls around, you've got other financial obligations and it just kind of dissipates. Maybe happiness to you is relationships. I, I love connecting with human beings. Absolutely love connecting with human beings. And sometimes, as you know, relationships are a roller coaster. One day, it's a fantastic, wonderful thing, and the next day, you're by yourself, uninvited, and alone. Happiness is based on our circumstances, just the things that happen around us and how we react to them. Matter of fact, happiness one day is a beautiful, wonderful thing, and the next day, it kind of kicks you in your shins. Uh, gentlemen, who loves sending flowers to their wives? Wives who likes having their boys in their life send you flowers. It's a good thing. Matter of fact, this is kind of what happens in my mind. This may be reality or whatever. Um, but like, you send flowers to your girl at work. At work, you've got flowers on a desk, and just everybody goes, and like, oh, they're so pretty. He's such a great guy. He's so awesome. Oh, he's a keeper. Now, if you keep doing that, if you keep doing that, you keep sending flowers to this girl, the girl's going to be like, oh that's, oh, that's great, or oh, that's nice. And maybe four or five months down the, round, uh, down the road, all these ladies and all these people around your girl's desk now saying, oh, it's flowers again, huh? Where's the diamond? Where's the limos? I mean, happiness one day is a great thing, and the next day it's like, oh, that again. I, <laughs> um, if you're anything like me, sometimes, guys, um, stress at work there's a lot, of, a lot of things on our shoulders. We come home, and, and if you've got kids, if you've got family, if you've got people around, if you've got nine cats, whatever you got, your choice, I don't care. Um, sometimes when you get home, guys, you just want to unplug. I want that warm, beautiful hug from ESPN to tell me everything's okay. <laughs> I want to know that my Cardinals are still in the Central doing great things. I just want to put blinders on to human beings, even though I love human beings and relationships so very much. Sometimes I just want that wonderful glow of the TV to give me a warm, nice warm hug and give me some happiness. But again, if I chase after these things, if we chase after these things, they're so just here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, today, we are continuing in the um, series of lifelines. And today we're talking about joy compared to happiness. Happiness is very circumstantial. Things that happen to you, if I give you a dollar, you'll say, oh, whatever. And if I give you a car, you're like, oh, best friends. If the car doesn't work tomorrow, like, Arr. it's just a roller coaster. We're going to be comparing happiness to joy in the Lord. And joy is that inside smile that's a reaction to whom God is in our lives. Remember back, if it's been two hours, two weeks, two decades or more, do you remember when Jesus became real to you? Do you remember when it wasn't your church's faith anymore? Maybe when it wasn't your parents' faith anymore? Guys in high school, when it wasn't your girlfriend's faith anymore? And it was true. It was yours. And in your heart you knew that there is a God that would literally move heaven and earth 
because he loves you so much that he wants to bring restoration to your broken life. Do you remember that? Remember when you kind of puffed up a little bit? Remember when you had like a bounce in your step and you're like, yeah, I like this, this is good. Remember that feeling of joy that was so overwhelming that it changed your life? That's the joy we're searching for this morning. Not necessarily the happiness that comes and goes, that withers, to, uh, is beautiful today, but withers tomorrow. Uh, some of these lines we're going to be looking at in Philippians 4. If you want to, grab um, your phones, your tablets. If you want to go old school and, and get out a Bible, go for it. Philippians 4. Um, we're going to start at 4, but we're going to go through a bunch of verses because there are so many lifelines that we look at. When life starts crashing down on us, when things are in the bleak, dark time, there are things that we can just grab onto in these verses that bring us joy and bring us hope, bring us comfort, and it pounds just the fact that our joy needs to be in the Lord and not in circumstances. So as we turn to Philippians 4, uh, let's give you a quick background of what's happening. Philippians, uh, the whole entire book, has been written by Paul to a group of believers in Philippi, which is a Roman city. It's got a garrison there. There's tons of military. Uh, it's just a happening town. Now, Paul, you see some amazing language in Philippians some loving kindness. This is a gentleman not writing a letter to someone that he's never met. This is, this is a guy writing a letter to his mom, to his grandma, to his cousins, to his aunts. He loves these people. He cherishes these people. In some of the first verses in chapter 4, he says, you are my pride and joy. You are the reason why all this hard work is, is paying off because I can see people that were used to be outsiders that had no idea who God was, had no idea who Jesus was, but now they're insiders. And there's this church in Philippi. So you can see not only Paul the apostle writing, you see a dad, you see a brother, you see a son writing these people that he's spent so much time with that he loves truly, and he's writing from jail. So keep that in mind. A wonderful letter to his loved ones, and he's in jail. Jail, not like prison we would have today. Um, he is under house arrest. He is unable to leave the home. He can do nothing for himself, and he is basically saying, church at Philippi, thank you for sending me money so I can eat. Thank you for sending me resources so I have clothes to put on my back. There is nothing I can do for myself. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for loving me. So keep those two things in your back of your mind. That, that This is a personal, wonderful relationship between Paul and the people of Philippi and that he's in jail. Um, Paul starts this chapter out by calling out publicly two dear women in the church. I am not going to do that. I don't think it would be wise of me to say, hey, that Bob family over there, and hey, that Taylor family over there, you got issues, you need to straighten that up. Paul has enough guts to do it because he has this personal relationship, and in public says, you two ladies are amazing people of the gospel. You have been doing amazing things in your town to share with other people. Stop it. <laughs> be like-minded. Come together. I don't care if someone stole your apple pie recipe, if you wore the same dress the same day at church. I don't want to go too far into this. I have no idea what it is. But he is saying the cure for discord is rejoicing in the Lord. And that's where we start in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Let's read it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The very first line here is one of those great lifelines. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes when things look happy. No, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. We are called to rejoice. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what our situations, no matter what is happening around us, to us, and through us, Paul is commanding us to be people firmly rooted in who Jesus Christ is in our lives. We are called to firmly stand in the, in the joy that we find in God and not in the circumstances around us. Even though we live in a world where doubt, fear, and hostility are common, uh, and it challenges us to rejoice in every circumstance, he says, in everything you do, rejoice in the Lord. When we are focused on Christ, the rest of life's details oftentimes melt into the background. When we are self-focused, when we are worried about today, what's happening with my life, what's happening with me, 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 and if you're anything like me, me is a big deal. Um, We kind of take care of number one a lot. And he's saying, don't worry don't be anxious. Now, that is a difficult thing to say in this day and age where anxiety is through the roof. When we have so many people that we love, that are dear to us, that we are friends with, it might even be ourselves, that we struggle a lot with anxiety. I am not a doctor. I'm not looking at you and saying, well, just pray it away, people. It's what we can do. But honestly, I don't want to water down the scripture. I don't want to water down what Paul is telling us. He is challenging us and says this, don't worry. Stop thinking solely about yourself think about others. He gives the prescription from after rejoicing, he gives a prescription of how to help us stop worrying about what's happening in our lives. He says to pray, prayer, petition, request, and thanksgiving. All of these words have root in talking and bringing problems to God, and most of them have a root in bringing other people's issues to God. So not only praying for what's happening in our life, connecting with God what's happening in our life, but our kids' lives, our grandparents' lives, our church, our community, our leaders, our bosses, the people that we can't stand, he is calling us out that if we are super focused on ourselves, there's gonna be some anxiety. But when we are super focused on others and bring that to God, it's gonna ease our anxieties. And the last one is Thanksgiving, and I love this one because... I sometimes live in today. I live in the moment. I worry about what's happening today. I might even worry about what's happening tomorrow. How often do you and I stop, turn around, and truly remember how God has blessed us, answered prayer behind us? Have you been in the situation where you've been talking to that buddy or that friend or that, that mom, and, sh- and they look at you and go, oh, isn't it great that God blessed you this way? I remember that prayer request you had a couple months ago, and you're like, oh, Yeah. Paul is commanding us and telling us, hey, stop and smell the roses for a second. Look behind you and see what God has done. Sometimes we are so super focused on what the next thing is, what we've got to get accomplished, the pain and hurt in our lives now, that we stop, look back and say, oh, okay, I wouldn't have chose that path, but thanks God, (laughs) that's good stuff. So he's saying anxiety um, is, is one of those things that we can try to stomp out just by just trying so hard to focus on others and connecting with God. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm just trying to tell you what Paul says. Philippians 4, 8 through 9 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is uh, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whether you have uh, learned or received from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. God, Paul lists out a few things that might build 
the joy in your lives, not based on circumstances, but based on whom God is. He gives these truth, pure, love, right, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. How often are we running after those things? Because sometimes in my life, when I run after these little momentary glimpses of happiness, none of them fit in this list. Circus peanuts, I would consider lovely. Sugar, maybe, I don't know. But the things that we put in our bodies, the experiences we try to have, most of them aren't praiseworthy. Most of them aren't noble. Most of them aren't, hey, I'm going to put this on Facebook or tweet about it because it's such a big deal. Sometimes we just chase after things that are damaging. If you're anything like me, humility is kind of a big deal. I'm tall, I'm goofy, I'm loud. Sometimes I'm a spectacle, and I apologize about that. It happens. I try very hard to point people to Jesus through this, whatever this is. Um, And when Paul says in verse 9, if I did it, if I taught you it, if I spoke it, if you saw me do it, you should do it because I'm a kind of a big deal. It kind of get that, I get that shiver down my spine of like, whoa, Paul's a little full of himself. That's ridiculous. I don't want to call out Paul, but do you ever read something that Paul wrote and goes, oh, I don't know if I like that. And so I started studying and, and looking into this. Um, actually, my beautiful wife pointed this out. She's awesome. If you look at the book of Acts, Acts is basically uh, the book that explains to us the history of the beginning of the church. What we have in Acts is a perfect story of what happens with Paul and his buddies in Philippi, the town that he's writing this letter to. He is saying, hey guys, remember that one time when I was in your town at the very beginning when there was no Christians and this happened? Let's read it. Acts 16, 16 through 24. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for the owners of fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and I love this. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. And here's the payoff pitch. Remember, this is Paul reminding them what happened in their town before they were Christians. 22, the crowd, them, possibly them, possibly their relatives, possibly their friends, possibly people they know. The crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. A jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. He received these orders. He put them in the inner cells and fastened their feet in stocks. Paul is talking to these friends, these family members of him in Philippi that reminded them, hey, you remember that one time that your town, maybe even you before you were a Christian, stripped me naked and beat me in front of everybody and then threw me in jail? And the story gets even better because while in jail, Paul and Silas, it was about midnight and they were singing hymns, praising the Father, praying so loudly that other people could hear him and something crazy happened. There was a huge earthquake and the walls fell down and everybody was free and it was crazy. He could have been in that prison crying, kind of like I would be after that situation. 
Maybe like you. Paul had full right to say, did I whine and complain? Did I argue? Did I say, oh, mommy, when I was in jail after being beaten by you? He looked at these beautiful people. He looks at us today, and he commands us to live a life of joy firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and not a life of happiness based on our circumstances. He looked at these people and just reminded them, hey, remember what happened in your town before that church was there? that maybe you participated in. This is not a learned trait of dealing with life's ups and downs. Being flogged is not a, eh, it's a Tuesday kind of an event. This is being connected to and through Jesus Christ. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Oliver Cromwell, military leader or hated dictator, depending on what side of the aisle you are on that one, uh, said this about this particular verse. This verse once saved my life. It was the one beam in a dark place of utter hopelessness and misery which followed the death of my son. We are called to be people of joy, not based on circumstances, but based on who God is in our lives. So now that we've talked a few, thing, uh, talked a few things about uh, rooting our lives in joy in Jesus Christ, here are three ways through this piece of scripture that we just read to try to build on that. None of them are easy. All of them are difficult. So welcome. Number one, prayer that overcomes anxiety. I do not have a magic pill. I am just reading Paul's words to us. When we live a lifestyle of journaling, when we live a lifestyle of grouping up and sharing our prayer requests, when we live a lifestyle of prayer first, be angry, and self-centered second, we can start to chip away and destroy this anxiety and worry in our lives. When we are firmly rooted in today is a day that God has amazing plans for me, instead of, you know what, I'm damaged, and how dare they? How dare they hurt me? How dare they not give me the opportunities to spread my wings and fly? When we live a life of prayer, that overcomes anxiety, we are living out a life of joy. Uh, number two, patterns of thought that celebrate God's goodness. Remember the, um, the truth, love, uh, lovely, noble, right, pure, praise, worthy, acceptable, these, these wonderful things. Um, I was challenged by a junior high, at a junior high conference by an old preacher a long time ago at SLCC, St. Louis Christian College, and he looked at us and he looked at like the five or six hundred junior hires in the room and he said this, and I'm going to share it with you because I think it works. He's like, there's a lot of things in life that you are not in control of, that you can't influence. There are things that happen to you every day, those things you can't change. There are things that we can, and that's where you start. So he encouraged us, and I'm encouraging you, to walk into whatever room it is in your house. Because your house, you probably have a lot more influence than the outside of the world. If, if you're married or not, you know, whatever. Um, wherever you're at in your life, stand in front of a wall. And I know this sounds silly, but start screening the things you see in that wall through this list. When you stand in whatever room it is, your bedroom, uh, your kitchen, start with a wall and start scanning. Are there things that are true and noble and pure and praiseworthy that's on this particular wall? And then if, as soon as you filter all those things out that are good and keep them and all the junk you get rid of, you move to the next wall. And then you move to the next wall. And then you move to the next room. And then you move to the next room. Because there are things in this world you can't handle because it's outside and it's, you got really no choice. But you can take care of your home base. Let me give you an example of mine. If I walk into my room, 
the first thing I see is a picture of Stacy and I getting married on the beach. And that just brings a huge smile to my heart. And right underneath of it is the place where I plug my phone in. And then I have to think, the things on my phone, is it pure? Is it noble? Is it praiseworthy? Is it honorable? Are the things I'm doing on my phone? Social media is a positive thing sometimes. It's a negative thing sometimes. Angry birds. Mm, you know, what do you do? There are things in my life that if I go wall by wall and filter this out, am I, and this is the third one, am I living a lifestyle that embodies the gospel? Number three, um, Charles Spurgeon, famous 19th century preacher, said this in a message about joy. I believe that a man of God, under trial and difficulty and affliction, bearing up and patiently submitting with the holy acquiescence and still rejoicing in God, is a real preacher of the gospel. Preaching with an eloquence which is mightier than the words can ever be and which will fill or will find its secret and silent way into the hearts of those who might resisted other arguments. Church, he's basically saying we catch more flies with honey than vinegar. When our joy bubbles up, when we get excited because of Jesus Christ and not sad and bummed out and angry and defiant, and jaded of our circumstances, other people are going to step up and ask what's going on. Our words may fall on deaf ears when we try to reach those that we love dearly for Jesus Christ, but he says the greatest preacher I've ever seen is somebody who lives joy out. I'll leave you with one story. One last story. I never met Grandpa Paul. Stacy's grandpa um, died years before I, I met her, before we had a family, before we had kids. Um, but I've heard many stories about Grandpa Paul. Grandpa Paul was a deacon for decades. He was a um, short, <laughs> big-shouldered uh, like, uh, mailman who basically ran his route, not walked, ran his route every day. Um, and what Grandpa Paul was famous for was his attitude of joy. Wherever he was at, no matter what the circumstances, what was happening in his family, he had a smile on his face, and he bubbled over with joy, and people were drawn to it. Talking to Grandma Maxine, talking to Stacy's dad, having these conversations at Christmas or Easter, and talking about Grandpa Paul, they always put a smile on their face. The last five years of Paul's life was very difficult. ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, is a horrible thing. This man lived a life where he could literally probably pick up his entire family, literally pick him up, move him around, took care of him, loved him. He didn't rely on anybody. He just took care of everyone else in the last five years of his life of declining health because of ALS. The roles were reversed. Everyone else had to take care of him. There was so many opportunities to complain, to be bitter, to be angry. The stories I've heard about Grandpa Paul Never a complaint. He was singing Gaither in hospice. He was praying for others. He was worried about others before he was worried about himself. This was a man that was living a life of joy, not based on his circumstances, but based on his relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's my challenge for you. The commandment of Paul of rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, the anxiety, all things I can do through him who gives me strength are these wonderful lifelines that we have the opportunity to be rooted in joy. What would it look like? What kind of freedom would you have in your life 
if you didn't have to chase after happiness and ultimately be saddened every time? What if we were a congregation? What if we were families of people that lived our lives based on Jesus Christ and the joy we find into that? Could we change this town? Could we change our families? Could we change our work? That's my prayer and that's, that's my challenge for you. That's my challenge for me. Let us be people that run after Jesus Christ and not just circumstantial happiness.